Today, we have Dr. Anat Brower. She is the IVF director at Shaded Grove Fertility in New York, and she is going to dive into all the medical information that you need to start your journey. So going through the fertility process and going through the donor conception process can be really stressful. And sometimes it could be so helpful just to get some very sound medical advice so you know step-by-step what choices you're making. She's going to cover things like how to think about choosing a donor and how do you know your donor is the right sort of donor from a medical standpoint how to think about donor sperm, how to think about donor embryos, how to understand if you should use a known donor, if you shouldn't, and how to conceptualize, how do you order these things? How do you think about your priorities? How do I think about what to do first? She's going to lay it all out in a very concise way and give you a lot of help. So tune in, I think you're really gonna enjoy this episode. Welcome to Donor Conception Conversations. This is the one podcast created exclusively for people who are planning to use donor conception to build their family, or for people who have already built their family with donor conception. I'm your host. My name is Lisa Schumann. I'm a researcher, a therapist, and an expert in donor conception. And over my more than two decades of experience working both in fertility clinics and in my private practice, the Center for Family Building, I've met with thousands of donor-conceived individuals, children, recipients, and donors. And I've learned so much, and I'm here to teach you all that I've learned in this podcast. My guests and I will talk about everything that you need to know to have a better journey to parenthood. If it's about donor conception, we're going to talk about it. And today, I'm very lucky to have a friend and colleague, Dr. Anat Brower, with us today to share so many wonderful things. Dr. Brower is the IVF director of Shady Grove Fertility in New York. She has expertise in ovulation, ovulation induction, IVF, egg freezing, PGT, third-party reproduction, including donor egg, donor sperm, and donor embryo, which she's going to tell you a lot about, which is really interesting. She applies the, the latest clinical data, state-of-the-art technology, and extensive clinical experience to optimize pregnancy rates while also minimizing patient stress in her very supportive approach to care. She's published and presented on national numerous meetings on the topics of optimizing fertility treatment with patients with PCOS and people who are using gestational carriers. And she's especially passionate about helping young patients with cancer build their families, which has led her to serve on the advisory board of the Young Survivors Coalition. Dr. Brower enjoys spending time with her husband and her three children. She also enjoys cooking and running and spinning for her exercise in her free time and is a marathon runner, which is also an impressive accomplishment. So thank you so much for making the time, Dr. Brower. Just the one, just the one account. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy we finally got a date. Oh, well, it's just a pleasure to have you anytime. I'm so thrilled that you're here. Thank you. So I was wondering if we could maybe start with some of the topics that patients ask about a lot. And I think one of the things that I hear a lot about is, how do you know that your donor is the right donor medically? I see, you know, I'm looking through this list of profiles. How do I know that this donor is going to produce good eggs, that they're going to produce healthy eggs? And how do I make that choice? And it's interesting because there's so many different ways to find a donor. So 
here at SGF, we have our own database. Uh, we also have our own egg bank. Or so my patients either get patients, uh, either get a donor from that, or sometimes they use an outside egg bank, or sometimes they use an outside agency. And I always tell my patients that if you're using a donor from the database, they, they've already been totally screened and they're ready to go. And so there's very little downtime versus if you're using an agency, we then have to screen that donor. And so one of the issues we run into sometimes is that a recipient will really fall in love with the donor profile from an agency, right? And that donor hasn't been screened yet. And now I have to screen her medically. To me, it should almost be done in reverse, right? Is you know, the donor should be screened first before they're shown to any recipient. But it makes sense for a clinic to do that because we know that someone's going to want to match with that donor, but not necessarily for an agency, right? They don't want to put in that money, that money up front. So for me, medically, what I'm looking for is really related to the ovaries, right? At the end of the day, obviously you want someone who's genetically sound, meaning doesn't carry any diseases that you carry. We'll talk about that in a minute and has done the psych screening and, you know, medical screening and a, and a physical, et cetera. But what really makes a good donor, it's the ovaries, right? So with the ovaries in general, we care about two things, egg quantity. So how many eggs you have left and egg quality, meaning what is the genetics of those eggs? So egg quantity, we call that ovarian reserve. How many eggs you have left? Women, we have the most eggs we'll ever have in our mom's uterus. We have six to 7 million eggs. By the time you're born, you have about a million eggs. By the time you hit puberty, puberty you have about 300,000 eggs. And then every month, we start with a group of resting eggs. One of them is chosen to ovulate and the rest of them die off. And there's numbers that you can look at to see where you are on that ovarian reserve spectrum. One of those numbers is called AMH. It's one of the first blood tests we do on a donor to see if she has a good egg quantity. AMH stands for anti-mullerian hormone. It's a hormone that's made by the small resting eggs in the ovary. The more eggs you have, the more AMH you make. And it tells me if I'm going to give this person medications with the goal of growing eggs with the goal of retrieving them and freezing them, how many eggs am I going to get? That's a really important number to have. Now, it is not a perfect test. You know, the assay itself is not the most stable assay. So you could send it to the same person on the same day, two different labs. You could send it at different times of day to the same lab. It's going to be a little bit different. But in general, you want a good number. And what does a good number mean? So a normal image is greater than one, but you really want something, you know, a little more than that. So for me, for a donor, you know, obviously I want them greater than one. It would be more ideal that if they're in the twos or higher, people always ask me like, well, is there such a thing as too high? That's women, you know, with what we call PCOS, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome. They make tons and tons of eggs. Also not the ideal donor because that puts them at risk for things like hyperstimulation syndrome, which we can get into in a minute. And so that's one of the first numbers I look at. AMH, how many eggs am I going to get? You want a really good number to get a decent number of eggs. There's other ways of also looking at quantity other than just AMH. So with your period, you come in for a baseline ultrasound and blood work, or the, the donor does. We look at the ovaries. We can count how many little resting eggs she has. They're housed in little sacs of fluid called follicles. Also, our brains make a hormone called FSH at the beginning of the cycle that tell the ovary to grow an egg. So and that's inversely proportional to how many eggs you have. So the harder the brain is working, 
the lower the reserve, right? Because you have fewer eggs. So the brain's working really hard to try to grow an egg. So that's also a marker of, of quantity. FSH fluctuates from month to month. So it's not as reliable. AMH is really a better general marker, but also those three things is what we look at. AMH, FSH, which you send in conjunction with estrogen and a baseline ultrasound. So that's all quantity. But quantity doesn't dictate anything about chances of conception or chances of viability of those eggs to create embryos. That's all linked to egg quality, which is genetics of the eggs, which is directly linked to age, which is where the donor's age comes from. So the younger you are, the better quality eggs, right? So we generally, our donors are between ages 21 and 32. To me, that's kind of the sweet spot. And we'll get into PGTA a little bit later, but you know, we're looking for young ages, but even when you're 25, about a quarter of your eggs are chromosomally abnormal. And so, you know, it's not perfect, but, but the younger you are, the, the better off you are. So those are the two things I look at in general when it comes to how many eggs I'm going to get and what's the quality of those eggs. And then of course you have to look at all the other medical screenings, right? The toxicology screenings, the infectious disease screenings. If you're creating an embryo to use in a gestational carrier, there's certain FDA screenings that you have to do within a certain timeline, within 30 days of an egg retrieval um, of a donor or anyone else for that matter. Genetics is so important. So any of our patients trying to conceive, we highly, highly recommend, strongly recommend that they do preconceptual genetic testing, which is testing looking for recessive disorders. So recessive disorders are diseases that If you're a carrier of a mutation of one of these diseases, let's say cystic fibrosis, that's a very common one, it doesn't impact you or the baby in any way. But if your partner or whoever that gamete is coming from is also a carrier of the disease, that baby now has a one in four chance of having that disease, one copy from from one gamete, one copy from the other. And so we do that testing on all of our donors. We, We recommend all egg donors have that testing so that you make sure that whoever you're matching with, it's a good match and you're not a carrier of the same disease. So to me, those are the main medical screenings mm. that I look for. And so that can be difficult because at least you know that the patients that you've seen or that SGF has screened already fall in that window of what's a good criteria for matching. But if you bring somebody new in, whether it's somebody known or somebody from an agency, then patients really need to prepare themselves. You know, as Dr. Brower is saying here, is that you have to prepare yourself that that person may not be the best candidate for you and you may like them very much, but if they're not a good candidate for you, then you're not going to have a good chance of pregnancy and a healthy baby, right? So I think it's that's really helpful information for people to have. You know, the same thing applies for surrogates, which we're not talking about much today, but the same thing applies for surrogates. I see patients again and again fall, and it's all about how the agency is presenting the surrogate to them. I always would prefer to do the pre-screening first before the intended parents are introduced to the surrogate so that you don't fall in love with them. And then when it doesn't make sense medically, you're already kind of emotionally attached. So the same thing with the surrogates. We see it all the time. And, and I see it with donors. The more people are using agencies, the more I'm, I'm seeing that. Yeah. yeah. So get your medical screening first. Don't don't get attached is the bottom line. Yes. Well, I think that's great advice. And speaking of which, I'm wondering also about sperm. As you probably see all the time, people are getting sperm yes. from all sorts of sources, not just from a sperm bank. And 
either a friend's going to donate sperm or now there's these home kits, people want to do it at home. What do you recommend to people when they're saying, I want to use my friend or I want to be able to do it at home or it's really expensive, so I'm going to try at home? That's a tough one because at the end of the day, I mean, my perspective is, and there's so many products out there now where people can inseminate at home. I do think there's a role for that. I think that from a medical perspective, I would rather people just be monitored in a clinical setting and put this sperm where it needs to go at the right time because donor sperm has gotten really expensive. And that's that's also an investment. So if someone's going to invest in donor sperm, I'd rather them do it in you know, the right clinical way, which is let me monitor you for ovulation. I'm going to know exactly when you ovulate. I'm going to, and I'm going to do the IUI, the, inse- the intrauterine insemination at that time. Now, some of my patients don't have coverage for treatment unless they show that they have infertility. So for example, my lesbian patients, whether they're single or they have a, a partner, whatever it is, they don't have access to sperm every month. And a lot of these insurance companies are saying, well, you have to show me that you've been trying for you know six months or 12 months or whatever it is. And so, and that, or else we won't pay for it. In those cases, I do see a role for it because that's an additional investment. If you don't have coverage, now you're paying for the donor sperm. Now you're paying for me to monitor you and to do the IUI and the sperm thaw and all of those things. While I think it's better clinically, I understand financially why people might want to do it at home. But I would say to you that after three to six you know, home inseminations, if it's, if it's not working out, I definitely would see an REI. You know, there's a lot of misconceptions about seeing fertility doctors. First of all, I don't, I don't go to doctors. <laughs> I'm the worst <laughs> patient. I, I avoid doctors at all costs. My view is if you go see a doctor, you're going to be diagnosed with a problem. And then like, that's it, you know? So there is a misconception that if you go see a fertility doctor, you're going to be shuttled straight into treatment and IVF and on and on, right? Slippery slope. It really depends on who you see and what you want. And I think you as a patient have to advocate for yourself as to what you want. I am here because I have done three home inseminations. They haven't worked. I just want to make sure that everything, there's nothing else wrong. And then the outcome could be like, I'm just going to do a few more home inseminations. So, and what would the fertility doctor check? So make sure the tubes are open, right? If you're, if your tubes are closed or blocked for whatever reason, you're not, there's no point in wasting money on donor sperm to do home inseminations because you need to do IVF. Or let's say you're a carrier of a genetic disorder. You want to find that out also before you pick a donor sperm. You should definitely have that testing before you pick a donor sperm. You want testing for that. And you also want testing for something called CMV, cytomegalovirus, which is the most common antibody in the human population. It's a virus that causes the common cold. It can also cause liver issues, but if acquired while pregnant, it can also cause problems with the fetus. So because of the theoretical potential acquisition of this virus from a sperm specimen, you want to make sure that you've been tested for CMV antibodies. And if you've never been exposed to it, you want to pick a CMV negative sperm. So you you should get that testing done, whether it's with your OBGYN or your fertility doctor, usually the fertility doctor is the one that does it. So even before you do home inseminations, but if you're doing home inseminations and after three to six months, you want to make sure that your tubes are okay. Your uterus is okay. You want to make sure that um, you want to even check your AMH, right? Because that that's egg count and egg number. And what if it's low? And what if you want multiple children? And you wouldn't know that otherwise. So I don't think you're ever wrong to have a consult with a fertility doctor just to have a fertility workup. And then you can go along and and plan things as you want to plan them. I think 
having a plan or a timeline is very anxiety relieving. Mm. Yes. And the other part is if they're really attached to this sperm donor and they try at home and maybe they need a little help to ovulate and they don't know, then they're going to be using up all that sperm. Yeah. And and then what? And then it's gone. Yeah. If you don't have regular cycles, you should 100% see a fertility doctor first because you don't know when you're ovulating, you don't know when to time it. And the kits don't necessarily work in those situations and all the monitors, even the best ones out on the market now, not as good as objective blood work that you have done to look at hormones. That's great advice. That's great advice. So in some ways, even though it might feel a little bit expensive or aggressive for a patient, it's really kind of like being penny wise and pound foolish. You don't, we want to make sure that everything's okay before you move forward and and use the sperm that you might be very attached to or that you're spending money on because you want to make sure you have the best chance possible. And then what about uh, donor embryos? I know you guys have an, um, a donor embryo program, which is really amazing. And I really want everyone to know about that because there aren't a lot of places that have embryo donation programs. And so how does that work for patients? Let's say someone comes to you and says, I, you know, I'm thinking about using a donor embryo either because it's more cost effective or because I feel like it's, it's a more emotionally tied experience for me because I feel like I like the idea that somebody's kind of made these embryos out of love and now I can have a baby that was created out of love, you know, it, it feels a little bit different to some patients. So yeah. why, what do you think people should do when they start to think about this? The donor embryo program at SGF was really created to cater to, you know, a certain kind of patient that has it kind of exhausted autologous options or considering donor egg, maybe even a lot of times considering both donor egg and donor sperm but it's financially a lot more palatable than something like donor egg. It's really meant as kind of the last option. It's very financially accessible. And instead of going towards something like adoption, we don't call it embryo adoption. We call it embryo donation. Yes. But the idea is it's a bank. And by, and by the way, the reason this doesn't exist a lot in New York, but it exists at SGF is because the laws in New York surrounding use of a donor embryo are very murky. And so you know, a lot of people just don't even want to go there. So for us, we're very lucky because we have a lab in Maryland and we have a lab in Pennsylvania and we have a lab in Florida and we have a lab in you know, Virginia. And so it's, first of all, huge databases of patients that are walking through the door. Nationally, intended parents that have completed or parents that have completed their families, very few of them will donate their embryos. It's some, it's, the number's tiny. It's like 10% or something. That's it. And so, which is such a shame because there's embryos sitting in freezers all over America, right? Just Hundreds of thousands. It's very hard, you can imagine, emotionally to give that up, to have to make that decision. So I really commend those very selfless parents who've completed their families and are giving up their embryos because they're not getting anything for it. They're just, they're just donating it to the bank. So the bank is composed of embryos from parents or couples that have completed their families some of them are autologous, meaning they're their own egg and sperm. Some of them came from donor eggs. Some of them came from donor sperm. Some of them are, everyone's under 35 years old. Some of them are PGTA tested. Some of them are not. And you go on the database and, you know, the downside of choosing a donor embryo versus picking a donor egg and a donor sperm is that if it's, we show you whatever we have. So we can't show you information on autologous gametes, right? If 
they donated that. You, we can look at the history for you and tell you about the genetics and medical issues, et cetera, but they're non-disclosure, which is a whole other issue, topic of discussion, which I'm sure that you have mm-hmm. covered at all your other podcasts. There's no such thing as anonymity anymore. Just mm-hmm. so that's out there and yes. clear, but they're non-disclosure. So we can give you the information, but you're not going to be able to see pictures of the parents or childhood pictures, et cetera. If you pick an embryo that came from a donor egg or a donor sperm, you get access to that profile of that donor egg or donor sperm because that was already accessible previously. It's a great database. I will tell you it has become very popular, especially since the pandemic. And during the pandemic, everyone's priorities kind of shifted. And so we were getting less embryos in the bank, but more embryos out of the bank. And so the database is constantly kind of ebbing and flowing it's not like a donor egg or donor sperm where you get to pick exactly what you want. Um, not that anyone should ever settle for anything, but it's really meant for those patients who this is their one last ditch effort to have a baby and they cannot afford using donor egg. And so it is a beautiful option for so many of my patients. But if you're someone who really wants a big family and you want genetic siblings, donor egg is a better way to go because... With donor embryo, there's not usually large cohorts of genetic siblings, and we really only let you have them one at a time because the whole goal is not to keep them in the freezer for your use in the future, but to complete other people's families. And so if you're if it's one child, if you're okay with one child, I think donor embryo is such a beautiful way to go. And so many of my patients are taking advantage of it. If you want genetically related siblings, it's, it is a safer option to go down the route of um, third-party donor egg. Yeah. And I think the, it's also, there's also a benefit because if you were using these embryos from someone else who's donated them, then we know there's genetic siblings out there, but probably not a million of them, right? If they haven't used a donor egg or donor sperm. And you do have that opportunity of having this other family out there. On the other hand, you may not, as we talked about earlier, have patients who are in the same kind of health category their egg and sperm may not be as perfect as, let's say, a fresh donor. Is that right? Correct. But you're, I mean, you're, we'll have access to that and they're screened. Like, we're never going to give you a donor embryo that has a genetic, that their carriers of a genetic disorder or there's significant psych history. I mean, all of those things are screened for and you have access to those things. Oh, that's great. So people can actually look through those profiles. Yes, absolutely. Oh, that's fantastic. You can't see pictures and you can't, they're de-identified, but, but yes. It's wonderful. So when we think about all of these things, we have all of these options. We have donor eggs, donor sperm, and donor embryos, and people are thinking about how can I make sure that I have the best chance of success and the healthiest baby possible. Those are really important things to think about, but I think it can be so hard when you're in a known donor situation. You think, I have my best friend or my partner's cousin or somebody else in my family, and I really want that genetic connection so badly, or I want a co-parent so badly, and this is somebody that I really want to create a family with. And yet, then they're not really thinking about what we've just started talking about, which is how can we consider having the healthiest baby possible? How do you balance that as their doctor? Yes. So that is very tough (laughs) because um, when a patient comes to see me, the first question I ask them is, what do you view as your complete family and how do you want to do it? And there's so many ways to build a family. That's my starting line. And I always tell patients, it's like negotiating for a contract, right? Give me like everything you want 
Let's see if we can make it happen. And if not, you work backwards from there. But you always want, you never want to settle. You just want to see what is a perfect situation and then we can work from there. So a lot of patients come in with an idea of who they want to use or what they want to do for many different reasons, sometimes financial, sometimes genetic connection, or I now I have more and more couples who you know, one friend gives you know, a male couple their egg and then one of the couple gives her their sperm. I mean, there's like so many ways to do this and I love it. Like, that's what I love about what I do. Anyone can build a family and there's so many ways to do it, but you really have to try to limit your attachment to have the perfect idea, but try to be practical about limiting your attachment to that idea or be more flexible about that idea because of the medical screening, Right. If you're really, obviously, if you have a sister and you want to use a sister donor because you have a low AMH or God forbid you have cancer or whatever it is, you still want to make sure that you're going to have a good outcome with that known donor, even if it's a sister donor. And so I always tell my patients when they bring up a known or directed donor, let's just first do the testing. That sounds great. Let's do the testing. If it's a female, let's do the AMH. Let's do, you know, for both all the infectious disease screening. Let's do the semen analysis for the male patients, um, the genetic testing before we really get attached to that idea. But I have patients who, you know, regardless are attached and against medical judgment will, you know, still move along and, and try to get it done somewhere else or whatever it is, which is totally fine. I just think no matter who you use or how you do it, you just really really want the best medical outcomes. And there's also different rules and quarantine and all of these things that become frustrating for a lot of patients. We do require any of our patients using third-party donor egg, donor sperm, gestational surrogate to have a meeting at least with a reproductive therapist such as yourself. And that's not because we're judging anyone or want to you know, clear anyone. It's really to have the discussion of what does it mean to have this child? How am I going to disclose to this child? How are we going to talk about it? You know, and make sure you're prepared for that conversation. And if you're using a known donor, then I always, of course, involve the donor in that. And you should have two separate consultations and then have a group consultation. And if there's other partners involved, involve them as well. I think all of that is very important to make sure everyone's on the same page and legally as well. If you're using a known donor, I 100%, even it could be your sister, your best friend, whoever, you want to make sure you have a lawyer involved for all to protect all parties, including the child. That's great. That's wonderful advice. I hope everyone's listening because these words of wisdom are so important to think about. Those are some great, great points that you brought up, Dr. Brower. Do you think that there's anything else that we're missing or that you find are really points of contention for patients and their partners and their known donors? I think, you know, it's most important to really, like I said, establish the goal of what you want and work backwards from there. And just make sure that you're being going into it with open eyes and really an open mind, the medical background kind of in the forefront of your mind and protect yourself, all parties involved from a psychological perspective and a legal perspective. I'm curious to know if you've seen an uptick, which I feel like we've all seen in kind of a co-parenting model. And that becomes an issue at many clinics when it comes to paperwork. Like, are you a known donor? Are we treating you as a directed donor? You're actually, you're an intended parent, even though you're not sexually intimate partners. I mean, there's so many different ways to build a family now that many clinics don't even have the infrastructure to keep up with the consent forms because there's so many ways to do it. What are your thoughts there? 
Have you seen that? Yes. Well, I talk about that a lot. And I think it's really important for people to really think through the medical piece first, because if that doesn't, if that's not going to work, nothing else can work. But they really need to also think about, are you going to be a donor or are you going to be a parent? Because if the legal work is going to be different, of course, the medical paperwork is going to be different. And emotionally, it's going to be different for the future child, right? People think, oh, I can work this out. It's not going to be a problem. I can just let the relationship grow organically. Well, you know, does that mean that the donor is going to be at the softball game? Does that mean the donor is going to parent-teacher conferences? Are you going to live together? I mean, all of these things really need to be addressed for the sake of the child, even though people with infertility are struggling, and I completely appreciate that. We really need to think about what the long-term implications are for the children, and only in working through that question, are you a donor or are you a parent, can we start to kind of tease that out and think about what do other families think? What do your partners think? Are you ever going to move? Are you? And sometimes it really takes like doing almost like a reverse divorce agreement to try to tease out some of these details together. It becomes very complicated, but I think it's really important that people, even before they address that, think about, as you're saying, you know, is this person a good candidate to give me a healthy child? Because if they can't have that, then everything else stops, right? We're just looking out for you. At the end of the day. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah. And I really appreciate that. And I hope everyone's listening to Dr. Brower. Um, where where can people reach you? You can go to our website, which is shadedgrowfertility.com. You can always find me on Instagram. It's at Dr. Anop Brower. I have people messaging me all the time. Those are probably the two best places to reach me. And you can reach me anytime on my cell phone, Lisa. Wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> I won't be publishing that on this podcast. Um, and she meets She means but, it. Yeah, we're happy to hear from you. Wonderful. The woman who never sleeps. And you know, I just feel very blessed to do what I do and to be able to do what I do, where I do it and how I do it and with who I do it. And I, I really hope, you know, that shows to the patients. So we are always here to support you. Um, and good and in bad and and third party reproduction is can be such a hairy you know topic um, with so many iterations, um, which is so it's so important to find a doctor that you trust, a therapist that you trust, and a lawyer that you trust. And as long as you have those three on your team, you can't go wrong. Absolutely. Wise words. I really appreciate that. So I guess we could wind down now. And for anyone who's out there, please reach out to me as well as Dr. Brower with any questions. We're happy to be here for you. And please subscribe because that's how we can keep going. And you can hear about all of the information we have to share. You can also join our mailing list and you'll get a notice about all our upcoming podcasts. And thanks so much for coming. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. My pleasure. Thank you. 